step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Block Talk Radio.
Well, good evening. It is Monday night here at I Take Liberty with my coffee, Bobby Rodrigo, chiming in after the holiday weekend. Excited about tonight's show. I actually am a little sick, tired, and wasted as well that I need to talk about to everybody. You know, actually pissed off is probably a good word. You know, want to keep the tone down a little bit. We did just come out of a great holiday weekend where we thanks. And my guests that are going to be coming on and at the bottom of the hour certainly made the holiday special and worthwhile. Well, actually, you know, special might not be the right word, regular. Let them participate in the holiday like they want to and like everybody should be allowed to do what they want. They helped that happen this past weekend in Flint, Michigan. But I, but I have to tell you, I, I have to start someplace. I got a rant, I suppose, if you want to call it that. And I'm glad everybody is great today. I hope everybody's great today. Anyway, I'm glad everybody's great today. And things going on in your lives are wonderful. We got the holiday season coming up, et cetera, et cetera. But let's talk about the Washington Post, please. Because apparently I work for Vladimir Putin. I went and I checked my payments lately. And I didn't see his name on there, but I'm trying to get to the bottom of it because, you know, the Washington Post says I work for him. Must be true, right? There was an article that was put out recently by the Washington Post. And essentially what it did was it blamed the election results on independent media. And to take that a step further, it said that independent media on the basis of an independent quote, independent study, independent media was working for Vladimir Putin. And then it decided to this independent study decided to name a bunch of organizations. And the first thing that I noticed was, is that there was more than one organization that I actually write for. So I was, I mean, you know, without being, forget the sarcasm for a minute. This is absurd. It was, I was flabbergasted. It was absurd. And of course, all my colleagues and friends, I mean, these are people that are friends of mine and or colleagues of mine that we work, to, work together uh, about struggling to make sure that the truth is out there because mainstream media has disappointed us as Americans, as activists, as people who want to see positive change for the good, for believers, and whatever your belief is, the idea of what we were doing was trying to define journalism again for the world. You know, I'm, from, I'm a little bit older than a lot of the people that uh, were affected by this. You know, so I come from the Edward R. Murrow School of Journalism, where, you know, you talk about what's going on, and you give your opinion at the end of the, at the, end of the show, or however you want to put it. You know, the editorial departments and the journalist departments were all, have always been separated. And, and for a long time now, our news has decided it wants to tell us how to think instead of telling us what's going on. And they parade all these so-called experts. Most of them are not experts in anything other than rhetoric. And they hand it to us. So, of course, activism and journalism are tied together. I've been an activist for a very long time. I'm a full-time activist. I'm a full-time, a lot of things, full-time advocates, full-time journalists, full-time co- uh, radio show hosts, full-time worker for nonprofit organizations, as are many activists. We have, we have, we're tentacles. We, you know, we're like, the, we're like octopi where we reach out to so many different things that we're trying to do, sometimes a little bit too much, but we're trying to help. 
bottom line. So as a natural evolution of this process in our lives, one of, especially those of us who write, one of the things that have happened is, of course, independent media has been created. You know, the Internet has helped. Social media has, has helped. Negative, positive, whatever your particular view is. But I'm talking about the facts of this article mainly more than anything else. So for organizations that I'm involved with, for example, like anti-media, like anti-war, like Mint Press News, like the Fifth Column, the Sleeper Cells, all those other ones. And then, of course, that my colleagues are associated with, you know, American News X, and for example, uh, which you know, the coffee party, the blogs that are around that. And there are differences between blogs and journalism, absolutely. But it's still relevant. But people want to put information out there. You know, we're talking about holding the government accountable. My, my thing in journalism, my personal chi, is I want to hold government accountable. I want to shine a light on them. That's what my ideal journal. I'm, I'm more the robot type of a journalist. I, I don't really get into in my writing, what you should be thinking. I more get into, this is what they're doing. This is what the law says they're supposed to do. And here it is. Uh, if you want to do something about it, this may be the best route. Those are the kind of things, the kind of ways that I approach this. So this Washington Post article, and of course, naturally from the people who are on the left, and, and this is, I'm disappointed with a lot of people uh, from a standpoint of ideology constantly, but the people on the, left, on the left, of course, have grabbed onto this a little bit harder than others because of their disappointment in the election, because of their disappointment of the crap that has come out of Donald Trump's mouth during the election cycle and his life. You know, and nothing wrong with being concerned about that. But then the Washington Post, which is absolutely a left editorial newspaper, comes out and tries to say that all of these fake news sites are working for. Vladimir Putin. I mean, that's literally what, what they're saying. Now, they didn't do the study, but they posted the article. And the Washington Post is not some, you know, out-of-the-way media source. And then, of course, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow just jumped on posting it. And to Rachel's credit, I don't, you know, she said at the, she says at the end of her post that I, I read earlier today, for example, that The Intercept and Glenn Greenwald had come out with an article uh, countering the absurd Washington Post article, and they and and, and actually, I thought I, they did a uh, Glenn did a fabulous job. Glenn usually does; he does a fabulous job on what he talked about. And I thought it, the matter was solved as far as the response goes. But then, lo and behold, Matt Taibbi comes along. I love Matt, you know, and and, and and particularly, I point out Matt particularly to the left because Matt Taibbi is is the man when it comes to what happened on Wall Street. And how the crooks got away with so much. So Matt Taibbi is, is liked. And it was interesting that he had come out with it. And, and he did it in such a blown way. And I'm going to read his article. Because again, like I said, I'm really annoyed at the Washington Post. And I'm coming at him as much as I can. So this is what Matt wrote today. Uh, or what was released today <clears throat> a couple of hours ago. Last week, a technology reporter from the, for the Washington Post named Craig, Craig Timberg ran an incredible story. It has no analog that I can think of in modern times. Headline, Russian propaganda effort helps spread fake news during election, experts say. The piece promotes the work of a shadowy group that smears some 200 alternative news outlets as either knowing or unwitting agents of a foreign power, including popular sites like Truth Dig 
and naked capitalism. The thrust of Timberg's astonishingly lazy report is that a Russian intelligence operation of some kind was behind the publication of a hurricane, quote unquote, of false news reports during the election season, in particular stories harmful to Hillary Clinton. The piece referenced those 200 websites as, quote, routine peddlers of Russian propaganda, end quote. The piece relied on what it claimed were two, quote, two teams of independent researchers, end quote. But the citing of the report by the longtime anti-communist foreign policy research institute was really window dressing. The meat of the story relied on a report by unnamed analysts from a single mysterious, quote, organization, end quote, called Prop or Not. We don't know if it's one person or, as it claims, over 30, a, quote, group, unquote, that seems to have been in existence for just a few months. It was Proper Knott's report that identified what it calls, quote, the list, end quote, of 200 offending sites, outlets as diverse as antiwar.com, lewrockwell.com, and Ron Paul Institute, were described as either knowingly directed by Russian intelligence or, quote, useful idiots, end quote, who unwittingly did the bidding of foreign masters. Now, I got to stop right there because Matt is saying, gosh, first of all, anti-war, I know, I know, I know the founder personally. I know what they write about. It's a, it is a site that calls out the imperialism of the United States worldwide and our warmongering that we do. And, and it is an advocate for anti-war. Peace, 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 peace has no love of Putin and communism or any other anti-liberty-minded country or anything like that. It never has, never will. Uh, Lou Rockwell, I, you know, I have read plenty of there, but I don't know them personally. The Ron Paul Institute, I know a number of people who write for Ron Paul, and Ron Paul is so far from a, a Putin communist, I couldn't, I couldn't even begin to tell you. Anyway, moving on. Forget that the Post offered no information about the, quote, prop or not, quote, quote group, beyond that they were a quote, a collection of researchers with foreign policy, military, and technology backgrounds, end quote. Well, I'm a researcher that has foreign policy, military, and technology backgrounds. They didn't call me, just saying. Forget also that the group offered zero concrete evidence of coordination with Russian intelligence agencies, even offering this remarkable disclaimer about its analytic methods. Listen to this. Quote, please note that our criteria are behavioral. For purposes of this definition, it does not matter whether they even know they were echoing Russian propaganda at any particular point. If they meet these criteria, they are at the very least acting as bona fide, quote, useful idiots, end quote, of the Russian intelligence services and are worthy of further scrutiny, end quote. So if I criticize Hillary Clinton, which I have many times, or President Obama, which I have many times. He's the president of the United States and he's done things that I don't like. And I think that, and, and irrespective of what I like or don't like, when I report about actions by President Obama, I report what the actions are. You know, when he signed the National Defense Authorization Act for, to allow indefinite detention in this country, anywhere in the world by, by, of citizens of the United States, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I blew a lid. I joined one of the I joined the largest organization in the world that is fighting that particular thing, and I talk about it, and I to continuously, I talk about that particular issue. It's hard. It is unconstitutional. It's one of the worst laws that's ever been created, if not the worst. So that makes me a, a Putin guy. That is ridiculous. So, moving on, <laughs> what this apparently means is that you've published material that meets their definition of being useful to the Russian state. 
you could be put on the list and warrant further scrutiny. Forget even that it's Twitter responses of, to criticism of its report. Proper not sounded not like a group of sophisticated military analysts, but like one like one teenager, which is exactly what I that, – that is so interesting that Matt put it that way because here I'm thinking what Washington posted is basically went into the schoolyard and called out everybody and said, you're this, you're this, you're this. And if you don't like it too bad, because I've already I've already uh, convinced the rest of the school that that's who you are. But you know what? I don't care. We're going to fight. I'm going to walk across the schoolyard and I'm going to fight you without question. And those who know me from school knows that that's happening without question. So, quote, ah, look at all the angry Putin is trying to challenge the subject. They're so very angry. That's what the Twitter was. That was written on Sunday. That's how they're talking. Quote, fascist, straight up motherfucking fascist. That's what we're up against. End quote. It wrote last Tuesday, two days before Timberg's report. That's before. Any halfway decent editor would have been scared to death by any of these factors. Moreover, the, fa- the vast majority of reporters would have needed to see something a lot more concrete than, than a half-assed theoretical paper from such a dicey source before denouncing 200 news organizations as traitors. And, it, and, and there's no question that Matt knows some of us on this list, personally. There's no, I don't know, Matt very, I don't know very, Matt very well at all. There are plenty of people on this list that, that he does, I'm sure, and that's one of the reasons why he's just, he just went off. Because he normally doesn't write quite like that, which is another pleasant surprise in this particular circumstance. I'm all for civil dialogue, absolutely. I have no problem with something being blunt when you're dealing with outright lies. But if that same source also demanded anonymity on the preposterous grounds that it feared being, quote, targeted by Russians' legions of skilled hackers, end quote, any sane reporter would have booted them out the door. You want to blacklist hundreds of people, but you won't put your name on your claims? Take a hike. Marvelous statement. Yet the Post thought otherwise. And its report was uncritically picked up by other outlets like USA Today and the Daily Beast and MSNBC, as I mentioned. The Russians did it. story was greedily devoured by a growing segment of blue state America that is beginning to fall victim to the same conspiracy tendencies that became epidemic on the political right in the last few years. Exactly. The right-wing fascination with conspiracy has culminated in a situation where someone like Alex Jones, for example, who I have no respect for, by the way, of InfoWars, who believes juice boxes make frogs gay. That's him saying that, not me. I'm not not sure if that's I've never heard that before, but knowing Alex, one can only wonder. It's considered a news source. Jones is believed even by our new president-elect, who just repeated one of his outrageous reports, to the effect that 3 million undocumented immigrants voted in the November 8th election. Again, more absurd stuff. The Jones report was based on a, by, on a tweet by someone named Greg Phillips of an organization called VoteStand. When asked to comment on his methodology... Phillips replied in the first person plural, sounding like a lone spree killer claiming to be a national terror network. No, we will release it in open form to the American people. We won't allow the media to spin this story. Sorry. This is remarkably similar to the response of prop or not when asked by The Intercept to comment about its list report. The only difference was Phillips didn't use uh, emoticons. Quote, we're getting a lot of requests for comment and and can get back to you today, end quote, proper not told the intercept, quote, we're over 30 people organized into teams and we cannot confirm or deny anyone's involvement, end quote. They never called the intercept back. 
Most high school papers wouldn't touch sources like these. But in November 2016, both the president-elect of the United States and the Washington Post are equally at ease with this sort of sourcing. Even worse, the Post apparently never contacted any of the outlets on the list before they ran this story. This is another pet peeve of mine and, and my colleagues as well. Eve Smith at Naked Capitalism says she was never contacted. Chris Hedges of Truth Day. Chris Hedges. Chris Hedges. Chris Hedges, who was part of a group that won the Pulitzer Prize for the New York Times once upon a time. And the same, quote, we were named, end quote, he tells me. I was not contacted. Hedges says the Post piece was an updated form of red baiting. This attack signals an open war on the independent press, Hedges says. Those who do not spew the official line will be increasingly demonized in corporate echo chambers, such as the Post or CNN, as useful idiots or fifth columnists. It's interesting, I write for an organization called the Fifth Column. All of this is an outgrowth of the horrible election season we just lived through. A lot of reporters over the summer were so scared by the prospect of a Trump presidency that they talked, in, in cases publicly, about abandoning traditional ideas about journalistic distance from politicians in favor of open advocacy for the Clinton campaign. Quote, Trump is testing the norms of objectivity in journalism, end quote, is how the Times put it. These journalists seemed totally indifferent to the Pandora's box they were opening. They didn't understand that most politicians have no use for critical media. Many of them don't see alternative points of view as healthy or even legitimate. If you polled 100 politicians about the profession, 99 would say that all reporters are obstructionist scum whose removal from the planet would be a boon to society, something I heard about lawyers recently. The only time politicians like the media is when we're helping them get elected or push through certain policies, like, for instance, helping spread dubious stories about Iraq's WMD capability. Otherwise, they despise us. So news atlets that go into bed with politicians are usually making a devil's bargain they don't fully understand. They may think that they're being patriotic, as many did during the Iraq WND episode. But in the end, what will happen is that they will adopt the point of view of their political sponsors. They will soon enough denounce other reporters and begin to, to see themselves as part of the power structure as opposed to check on it. This is ultimate in stupidity and self-annihilating behavior. The power of the press comes from its independence from politicians. Jump into bed with them, and you, not, and you not only won't ever be able to get out, but you'll win nothing but a loss of real influence and the undying loathe of audiences. Helping Baitway politicos mass label a huge portion of dissenting media as, quote, useful idiots, end quote, for foreign enemies in the sense of an extraordinary self-destructive act, maybe the Post doesn't care and thinks it's doing the right thing. In that case, at least do the damn work. That is a phenomenal, phenomenal article by Matt Tybee. I'm so glad that he wrote it following what Glenn Greenwald said. And I won't get into Glenn. That certainly uh, was long enough to discuss what my thinking is about what happened with the independent journalist attack by the Washington Post. And now think about this, folks. You know, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. That's not what we're talking. Journalism, I, I saw a... And, I, and I've put this on my YouTube channel as well. I, I had recorded Jeremy Scahill. I saw him at a Students for Liberty conference a couple of years ago. Marvelous presentation along with Oliver Stone relative to uh, Oliver's work uh, in, the, the history, in the history of war or how would you put it? Anyway, Jeremy was up there and, and he, as he has said many times on many of the various shows that he goes on, et cetera. So I'm not a Democrat or I'm, I'm not a Republican. I'm a journalist. That's the way it's supposed to be. You know, people 
uh, don't like Jeremy from the left, for example, because he has been unrelenting on President Obama, but he should be, should be unrelenting on Obama because Obama made promises during his election that he did not keep relative for things like drones and secret wars and, and NSA surveillance and, then, and, and the Patriot Act and all of these things that he discussed on being his, the constitutional law professor that he was – he did not keep those election promises, Gitmo, for example. He did not keep those election promises when he came in. So it's the job of the journalist to point these things out as policy changes versus the campaign promises. The same thing that's going on now with Trump saying, for example, that he was going to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, and now he has backtracked from that position, for example. You know, there, there, are, there are many things that go on in, in politics that is the responsibility of journalists to talk about. Well, when we have CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and ABC, NBC, all these people, all these outlets, New York Times and Washington Post, becoming the mouthpieces for the politicians, whether they're elected or not, when that happens, then the only thing left for truth are the journalists that take the time to go to independent media to point it out, period. Now, you should vet everything. Information is right in front of your, front of your fingers. You should look at the website, like if you see a website that says abcnewscom.com, it's not really ABC News, for example. You need to do your diligence, everybody, for sure. But this is an important point in our history when it, because the First Amendment is being attacked on many levels. If you're paying attention to Standing Rock, the letter that just came out from the district commander for, Department of, for the Amer- Army Corps of Engineers that he sent to the chairman of the, of the, of the Sioux, uh, and, and the encampment in Standy Rock, and you know they they're telling them, you know that they're going to remove them, regardless, and they're going to create free speech zones. And here we are, and that that infuriates me. Um, you know, <laughs> the First Amendment says I'm going to protect your right to free speech in free speech zones. I'm sorry, it doesn't say that. And when anybody makes laws that interfere with the first amendment you know diane feinstein is on board talking about how she wants to qualify who's a journalist and who's not i'm sorry diane that's not your job the constitution already took care of that for example this is really dangerous times and we have things going on in our society ferguson and baltimore and and brutalities and tyrannies and standing rock and of course flint michigan which we're going to get into deeply here today the last thing we need is free speech interfered with, when, of course, we need that never anyway. But that's what's going on here. And when Washington Post comes out and does this, they're essentially on board with the rhetoric out of Washington from the right end, from the left, from the establishment, we'll call it, from the establishment, trying to curtail the, the independent reporting just because they're criticizing a particular politician, no matter who it is. That is ludicrous people and please stand up to that at all times and please look and see what's going on in your lives okay so now <laughs> as you can probably tell I'm, I'm really annoyed by this and getting worked up so i have to deep breath so i'm going to take a break just for a second because i haven't played this commercial in a while and with tonight's show and the guests that are coming on this commercial is very appropriate so i'm going to play it for you right now real quick Well, maybe I won't. Let's see. There we go. You're an activist. You have a cause and an idea. But you also have lots of questions. 
you need help. After all, teams have coaches, corporations have consultants, and even politicians have campaign managers. But who do activists turn to? The Solutions Institute. We are a collection of professionals and activists from across the political spectrum. Our goal is to teach, motivate, and put all the necessary tools for activism in your hands without charge. Learn more or submit your project at solutions-institute.org. So with that, with, with that said way, and my breath I had to take from dealing with the Washington Post, I'm, I'm so excited, proud, uh, accolades. I'm just going to keep pouring out of my mouth during this whole conversation, I'm sure. It's one of the reasons why this show is important to me is because I am a colleague of these people. I am a member and have been from the beginning of the Solutions Institute, solutions-institute.org. And the new president, uh, and not really new, has been president for a while, Andrew Oponik, is on the show tonight. Our activist trainer, fantastic organizer, Anita Moncrief, is on the show tonight. And someone who I know virtually, but who I've never had the pleasure of speaking to, at least not to my knowledge, except for maybe on the Chicago thing, uh, who is the founder of the National Clean Water Collective and Mission Flint, is um oh i lost him where'd he go is uh mark danaram and i hope i'm saying that right because i i haven't talked to him i'm bringing him on the show i don't care about not meeting him until he's on the show but uh these people spent last weekend in flint michigan and for anybody who's been living under a rock this past couple years the situation in flint michigan is as dire as it is anywhere in our society this community this city has been devastated by bad water, by poisoned water, by bad government, by the example of how nonprofits do it better than government, and how the efforts of people with heart go out of their way, their own change their personal lives, and go about helping others have a better life. Uh, so I want to introduce these people to you. This is uh, Andrew Oponik, Anita Moncrief, and Mark Danaram, uh, welcome to the show. I'm so happy that you guys are here. Thank you for coming by. Hey, Bobby. Thanks for having us on. Hey, thanks, Bobby. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Absolutely. Anytime. You know, it, it, this, is, this is amazing. And, you know, we're all, we're, one of the things that happens in these organizations that we're all with is that we have different ways to communicate. One of the ways that we communicate is we have this thread of people involved and on Facebook messenger and we're always keeping each other up to date as much as possible that people can dive in. So I've been watching the stream cause I haven't been, I haven't been active in some of the stuff that Andrew and Anita have been talking about and obviously working with Mark on the side. And I wanted to get into that a little bit because I knew you guys were going there. I knew you were doing water, but then all of a sudden Anita, you posted all these pictures and I'm like, wow, look at what you guys did. And, and I had, I, I, first I want to start with you, Anita, fantastic job. Let me just start there and, and making sure that the world knew what you guys were doing. And apparently it went very well. Thank you, Bobby. Um, what Mark and Andrew really helped me put together, or they really did a lot of the bulk of the work, I really wanted people to know what was going on. Even though it was uh, Thanksgiving, I, a lot of people were focusing on uh, Black Friday that day, and I wanted them to see what we were doing and know that it was Flint Friday for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I and I I have not met you, Mark. At least I don't think so. And 
one of the things I, I hear from Andrew uh, and that Anita just mentioned as well is that you are you are the creator of the National Clean Water Collective, and you were the creator of uh, Mission Flint. And I, well, like, I'm, so one, I of guess, the, I'm one of the co-founders. Uh, the Sarah Scott is the uh, is the chair of, of the organization. Uh, my brother Brian Banneram is the the vice chair. Um, and we founded the National Clean Water Collective uh, in conjunction with Mission. Flint, uh, and Jen McDermott is, is the uh, co-founder of Mission Flint. So uh, these people were uh, really the ones, along with uh, Andrew and Anita, that were instrumental to making this all happen. Um, we started it with uh, Andrew, you know, some months ago, and uh, this drop in particular, uh, Anita got very heavily involved, and from an organizational standpoint, uh you know, she she really brought things to a new level. Um, she she taught us all a lot, and uh, you know, from that promotional standpoint too, of, of making sure people knew what was going on and, and what we're out there trying to accomplish. Uh, she was so crucial. So uh, this this drop in particular was pretty special um, because it felt like everybody was at the top of their game. Let me backtrack just a minute because I, I, I was not diligent in introducing everybody individually because I brought you all on together. So let's start again with you, Mark. I, I, I know what your background is. I'm not going to read your bio. I want you to tell us about yourself, what your background is, how you got involved. Just give us, a little, give us the, the A's and B's about it. Well, actually, um, I started off in entertainment way before I started off into activism. Um, and I found that the bulk of the things that I was creating was geared towards some sort of social or political commentary and, and that I, I'm not comfortable with the state of the world right now. Uh, as I started to learn more and, and read more and, and just try and develop my own uh, political perspective uh, is actually when I met Andrew and Anita. And uh, around that time, I began to get very uh, excited about the the pragmatic aspect of making change happen, um, the basics of how social progress works just on a, on a day-to-day operational basis. Um, I think a lot of people are disconnected with the reality that if you work hard and you keep a, a focused vision uh, – you can actually make legitimate change in your community and in the world as a whole. When I met uh, Anita and Andrew, that's that's when that clicked with me, and I began working on uh, Mission Flint. Uh, what it really stemmed from was instead of looking at this situation, sitting down with Jen McDermott and uh, Andrew Apenick and Aaron Nelson as well, who's also done a lot of great work down in Louisiana, um, and just sure thinking, is. instead of looking at this problem like we are kind of conditioned to, where it is this massive crisis that is, you know, inexplicable and we can't wrap our heads around it, let's wrap our heads around it. And let's learn the ins and outs of it, and let's figure out all of the smaller components that have compounded over time to lead to this cataclysmic moment and begin to work on healing those components uh, piece by piece um, while also building a larger movement uh, because we know that this is not a problem that is contained to Flint. 
We understand that this is an, un, this is an underlying issue of generational poverty and institutional racism and a, a blatant disregard for the health and welfare of the working class. Excellent. Wonder, wonderful that you said that. And a shout out to Aaron as well down in Louisiana. I do know Aaron and I'm glad, always glad to see his work and, and very well said, Mark. And Anita, same thing. I, I, as I said, I didn't introduce, you have such a long history in activism. Please tell everybody, introduce yourself to my audience, please. Hey, just a heads up, Bobby. Yes. <laughs> and I'm uh, quoting Anita. She says, uh, very few things can get between a black woman and her hair. <laughs> She's actually getting her hair done as we speak and trying to, uh, to juggle both of those. So <laughs> she doesn't answer from time to time. If, if she hears us, then uh, chime in. Anita. Otherwise, I will fill in the void for now. Uh, uh, I'm talking on mute again. Sorry about that, guys. That's okay, Anita. I understand. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm dedicated, but I got to get the hair out. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's part of the job. I get it. <laughs> well, I started off about uh, 16 years ago doing this stuff when I was in Birmingham, Alabama. I was doing local activism at the time um, through the University of Alabama. Then when I left there, I went to Acorn. And I worked with them for a number of years, and that's really where I got my passion for helping people on another level that I realized that it could not, it just didn't have to be a hobby. It could be a job. It could be a career. It could be what my mission. So I did that for a while, but then I realized that uh, some of the corruption that I saw, what I like to call the nonprofit industrial complex, as my friend Brandon Darby says, is basically what I was witnessing, that people, they were collecting all this money, but the money was in the fight. They weren't really out to help people. So I came over to the uh, right. I started working with conservatives, Tea Party people, and I kind of evolved over the years to, I think I'm kind of a weird libertarian who now just wants to work with people that do good. So that's part of what I've been doing, going across the country and training people in my day job and working with people like Andrew and Mark in my free time. I'm sorry, Nita. Did you say that makes you a weird libertarian? <laughs> I think that in, in, in the group of people that we're with, I think you're just fine. Personally, <laughs> maybe well, maybe, it's a, maybe we're collectively weird. <laughs> maybe, maybe a good word for her is a, is a liberal-tarian, meaning she has uh, the best of both worlds. How about exactly. I, absolutely, it's kind of like a hybrid absolutely. there, you know? <laughs> I, I, well, I, you know, Anita, we met with the... Anita, we work with a lot of the same people, and, and we haven't met personally yet, but we did meet when we did ActCon 3 together. That was the first time I had a chance to speak with you at length, and, and of course, I, you know, you, you recently met with my colleagues, Dan Johnson, of course, you know well, and Jeff Lewis and everybody else, and I, I'm glad to know you, and, and I'm going to be happy to sit down with you and talk sometime about all of the hybrid stuff that we have both been involved with, because I'm kind of, my definition is more like you. Uh, I know I'm weird, but it's more it's more like you when it comes to the hybrid nature because I've been on all sides and I think I've grown to hate them all absolutely. And then Andrew, Andrew, <laughs> my friend Andrew, my homie, tell Hello. us about tell my audience about you. Wow, where to where to begin? Where to begin? Um, I guess I would say that just like Anita and Mark, you know, I've always had. Uh, that inherent nature to want to help people. And so my uh, original career path was that of being an applied physiologist, which is essentially like a personal trainer, but uh, 
with a more clinical background with a master's degree. And uh, so, you know, I took that love of helping people, and um, I also took the suffering uh, that I felt by the hands of the system, so to speak, you know, and the various institutions that cause people to suffer on a daily basis. Um, you know, it's things like getting falsely arrested when NYC had its stop-and-frisk policy or medical bills, you know, that uh, pile up, you know, that uh, almost caused me to, you know, become homeless, but cause, but I caused people to go homeless every single day. And uh, and even did a, uh, I'm not ashamed to admit it, should a very short time in jail on a drug-related charge. And it was honestly one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life because uh, while I, uh, uh, as an under, not an undergrad, my master's thesis was on, um, was on drug addiction. Um, and I talked about it, you know, all the time and, and how jails and prisons are anything but correctional facilities. They're more like dysfunctional facilities. You know, rather than just seeing, uh, like, on MSNBC, you know, Lockup or one of those shows, I, I got to witness and experience it firsthand. And, uh, you know, it was eye-opening. And, you know, so many people get the bad name of just being a criminal and being a bad person. And, you know, talking to a lot of these guys, they're just normal human beings just like you and I who just got stuck to a terrible situation. You know, you're born to parents who might have had a father who was taken away from the war on drugs in the 80s, and now you got this, uh, you know, single mother raising poor kids, often black, and, you know, and then they they have to go to somewhere to, to make money. And long story short, seeing all that, suffering myself, and then just always loving and wanting to help people, and growing up with my father, who was a political junkie, and my grandfather, who was actually a politician for... Uh, the Latvian community. Latvia is a, a Baltic state, former Soviet. Uh, so I have, you know, the politics in my blood. I've always wanted to help people, and uh, you know, have a, after having my, so to speak, as they call it, uh, your spiritual awakening. You know, you really start to question life and yourself. Uh, I started going to Occupy protests, but just you know, kind of like a, an observer at that point. And uh, I would say that I really, really started to uh, dive headfirst into activism probably about three or four years ago, and then when Black Lives Matter began, I started to do a little organizing, started to become very um, active online and, you know, uh, putting out blogs and articles and essays, and then uh, I saw Dan Johnson, the, our founder on uh, RT, uh, talking about Solutions Institute, and I said, that's exactly what I've been waiting to see, because... Uh, you know, as a as a strategist and someone who sees the big picture, I just I came to realize that, uh, and uh, and this is not an insult to activists because we're all guilty, that uh, I was just you know basically standing in the streets, pounding the pavement, having like a, a an adult's temper tantrum, you know, because I only say that because very little, if any, of these protests we see have any plan, have any, uh, they're not solutions based. You know, and so as Teddy Roosevelt once said that uh, complaining without posing solutions is called whining. And I felt like I was, you know, at that point where I'm just whining and I really need a, an avenue and an outlet to try and actually take the momentum and the energy and the passion that all these people come together with and actually channel it somewhere, you know, appropriately such that we can start to get solutions. And uh, so that's how I, I got on board with Dan and then... Uh, Dan went off into a, uh, a side project, which became a full-time project, and uh, brought me on as president. And so here I am, uh, about six months later.
and loving yeah, every minute of it. Fantastic, you know, and, and I, you know, we know each other, and I definitely know the passion that you're into. You're actually reminding me while I'm why I am a part of Solutions Institute from the beginning as well, because you know, mm-hmm. uh, well, you know, I'm a full time activist anyway. I mean, I'm yeah. always doing something, but but the solution stuff is important uh, without question, just because. Mm-hmm. Of what you guys just did, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take your thunder away. We I, I want to get into that, you know the the how it worked, why it worked, and where you're going from there. So so let let's go back around the horn, Mark. Let, let's start with uh, how it worked. Let's go from there, and then we'll we'll move on. Now, um, right now, what we're looking at in in Flint is really uh, a mix of like short term relief uh, and long term solutions. So. The thing that we're uh, the reason that this event and this this entire weekend was successful it worked because we were we were attacking it from multiple angles considering the thing that I was uh, acknowledging before that these are a lot of different problems that have compounded into what we're seeing today so we can't just have a panel discussion or we can't just have water drops, so we can't just talk to the members of the community. We have to do all of it. And um, I think the reason uh, why it worked was was because we're approaching it from that angle. And I, and I think uh, someone like Anita um, uh, joining this operation is is why uh, is something like this is, is able to succeed um, because she brings a certain uh, – a certain structured mind and a certain kind of uh, pragmatic thinking um, that sees the bigger picture. And uh, I think that everybody that works at that core level of the operation uh, uh, has that frame of thinking as well. I also just want to add one thing too, is that, um, you know, one of the uh, unique aspects of Solutions Institute is the fact that uh, in addition to, Consulting with uh, activists and organizers, and you know people who head up organizations like ours, uh, we also train activists. And um, right. you know, it's right. just—it it reminds me. And uh, bear with me, because <laughs> I'm not—I'm not, I'm not uh, comparing aside what I'm about to say directly. But it reminds me, or other activists, for that matter, remind me of like going to the Iraq War and spreading democracy and whatnot. There might have actually been people in those countries that wanted it, but at the end of the day, you have to teach these people the tools, you know, and give them, uh, you know, empower them to be able to uh, take their own future, you know, their own destiny into their own hands. You know, a lot of these uh, uh, people, communities that we visit, you know, they kind of look at us like, who are these, you know, self-righteous activists trying to save us? And then they realize that we're anything but, and in fact, we're trying to come to these communities to help you save yourself. Because right. you know Americans have become so, so uh, uh, complacent and used to this this almost like hero worship, you know, whereby they're just right. waiting for one lone politician or hero to come in and save the day. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, the people that are going to save us are ourselves. You know, we have to be the change we want to see. And so uh, sometimes it just takes a little motivation, you know, just to, an, an inspiration to get get people to to become activists. And quite often they just don't know what to do and. So, uh, you know, that's what we did uh, <clears throat> partly this weekend is to teach peep activists and uh, up-and-coming activists, if you will, uh, how to be activists and where to start and, you know, and, 
and really give them what seems simple after you explain to them, you know, just sometimes you need to give someone a nudge and give them that information, and then they could take it themselves. And the idea is to go into these affected communities and give them the tools so that, you know, we can eventually leave and, and they can take it over themselves. Not to say we won't help, you know, and supplement their, their efforts, but if they ever want to take their communities back, and if we ever want to take this country back, then we're going to have to learn how to do it ourselves. So that's uh, one of the other great and unique aspects of SI that uh, really sold me, you know, when I first uh, joined. So, so yeah, that's, that, that's in part that what we were doing this weekend is teaching these people how to, uh, you know, tools are in the arsenal of activist change. That mindset, Andrew, has actually been a like a crucial part of how we've developed the National Clean Water Collective and Mission Flint and, and the influence that SI has had on uh, just the, the kind of ideological underpinnings of how we're approaching our activism. It's important to not try and save people because uh, that, that puts you in a position where you're superior to them. Uh, and I think that what we're trying to do is establish the precedent of not having that savior complex, rather supporting the people of Flint and helping them develop a system that enables them to take the political power they need to solve this crisis. Um, so doing what you can as an activist to provide the tools, but ultimately uh, you know, just enabling them to be at the forefront and, and really push everything forward as they see fit in their own community. You know, the, the, the Solutions Institute is a marvelous model, uh, there's no doubt. And the fact that you brought it up so eloquently, guys, I'm going to just read it from the website for my audience because I have not touched upon SI for a while and I want them to hear about it. So this is from solutions-institute.org on the About Us page. The Solutions Institute is the first ever activist training center dedicated entirely to helping people take their power back from politicians. While many organizations have a single focus or issue that they advocate for, the Solutions Institute focuses on teaching people around the world how to make a difference and, if they are already, already an activist, how to do it better. In our first seven months, we have, pledged over, we have helped over 40 diverse clients start three alternative newspapers, bring thousands of people to protest and town hall meetings, and get covered by numerous local, national, and global media outlets. We are professionals and activists from across the political spectrum, from March Against Monsanto to the Second Amendment advocacy, from medical cannabis to civil liberties, and from the left to the right. We are radio hosts, community organizers, psychologists, IT wizards, media professionals, and public speakers, street advocates, video artists, and researchers united for one purpose, take power away from politicians. We teach graphic and web design how to build a coalition and how to start a movement dealing with all levels of government, how to start a protest, how to pass and repeal legislation, and more. We have over 50 advising areas. We teach people how to become activists and establish organizations and with the tips and tricks of returning power to the people. We believe that a good idea don't require force. It's very important, everybody. And by reducing political force, taking power away from politicians, you can change the world. We're just here to help. That, I mean, you guys are a living embodiment of that, and it's marvelous to see i'm telling you know like i said i was here from the infancy of this and this is what it's all about i'm just i'm loving it so anita you have to tell me uh first you got to remember to take yourself off mute and <laughs> and you have to tell me <laughs> you have to tell me anita uh 
from your background, because you you were moderating a panel discussion, and then you also had a a what was described to me as a, a teaching uh, session at one one of the buildings, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. What you what you wanted to get across to everybody, what you hope that you got across to everybody. Tell my audience about that. Well, um, when I first came in, I was a little nervous about the training because I didn't really know the activists. So we got to do a little interaction during the panel discussion, and I got to kind of look out and see everything that was going on. And then afterwards, I had a chance to talk to everyone that was there and ask them about their projects and the things that they were doing. And based on some of the responses, I realized that um, my theory was correct because I've learned that most people, they naturally know what to do. And sometimes they just need the confidence to trust themselves that they're doing the right thing. And all I had to do was just add the framework to their existing um, activities. So the next day I got up and I designed something just for that group. And really we took it through just being more effective, being more strategic, you know, realizing that um, there is a lot of power in the things that we're already doing, but there's more power that can be built. And it's possible to do the impossible. I think one of the things that you see in Flint is that there is a loss of hope with some of the residents because they've been fighting so long. They've had uh, promises broken. They've had people come and go. And it's really about building the trust and getting them to understand that it's okay to hope. Hope's not going to fix things by itself. But if you don't have that hope that you can make a difference, that things can change, then you'll never get to that um, that new reality of what the community can look like. So that's really what we talked about, and that's only part one. I'll be going back there in December with the rest of the group, and I hope to do another session and really just dig deeper and get to the point where uh, we create these um, high-functioning teams that are, you know, basically – able to exist on their own. I think that was one of the problems with um, Saul Alinsky's model is that they concentrated the power in one group. The way we're doing it with the collective is really making it to where there's so many groups and they're building power separately, but we're working all towards the same goal. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, no doubt. The the swarm mentality, as I like to call it, decentralizing power and and having people work on their own little groups as you describe them and then looking and working together and, and creating a, a greater coalition as a result. You know, one of the things that, of course, has been forgotten is actually what is going on in Flint and what prompted this to happen. You know, the, the, we have a lot of distractions, some of them legitimate distractions, some of them not so much. But we can't forget about Flint at all because of the despicable, what I, I think is despicable anyway, despicable what, the things that have happened to them by the government of Flint, Michigan, and Michigan, the state, and the federal government. I mean, it's really at every level that they have been destroyed. Uh, I mean, the water, the, the water supply is hard. And Mark, Mark, I'll start with you. Talk to me about what you learned about from the people of Flint during this process? <clears throat> the thing that I learned from, from just being on the ground and, and talking with the people is uh, there is this level of confusion to the situation that is unprecedented in at least anything that I've seen before. And I think that when you see how the, uh, the media and politicians approach the situation, um, there is a, a certain level of they don't even know what the hell they're doing. Um, 
when I was actually on the ground and experiencing uh, that that loss of faith in some people, but also that others are energized beyond what they possibly would have been uh, without this crisis. Um, it shows that that it really is a a uh, very important part of our country right now, and and Flint always has been. Um, I mean, it is the birthplace of the middle class. Uh, but specifically in terms of what the working class in America is experiencing and what is being allowed to be done to the working class of America. Um, the residents of Flint are the embodiment of that, and they are that taken to its highest extreme, the amount of negligence uh, on behalf of, of the governor and uh, those around him uh, is absolutely criminal, and, and it is despicable. One thing yeah, I've, no doubt. Yeah. One, one thing ahead, I, I've, I've been finding also is, um, you know, one of one of the major reasons uh, I, I feel at least that um, you know these working class and lower and lower class you know poverty stricken communities uh, one of the reasons you know why they lose hope is not just because of the uh, willful ignorance of the mainstream media and the disinformation they put out there. But at the same time, um, and this goes for a lot of people in this country um, who want to really get involved, and that is the fact that you know if you're if you're lower middle class, lower you know working class, poverty line, wherever you're at, chances are you're really struggling to live. You're probably working two jobs, you know, or that one job you have is so uh, um, you're so liable, you're so the risk rather is is so high that you, uh, you know in terms of losing it. Um, that you can't help but uh, focus all your attention, you know, on keeping your family healthy and, in Flint's case, alive, you know, keeping them from drinking the water. Um, and, and that, it's almost like whether it's purposeful or not, it, it, this diversionary tactic, you know, by the, by the ruling class is working because, you know, a lot of these people do want to change uh, what's going on in their communities. A lot of them simply don't have time. And, and you know, the the lower... Uh, uh, the average income of a community becomes, you know, the more they're affected, but at the same time, the less power they have, and not even because of their money, but just by virtue of their uh, ability to act. You know what I mean? It's like, do do I go to a protest tomorrow, or do I, you know, go to work and make sure that uh, my mortgage is paid, you know, or my lights stay on? I mean, you know, it comes down to that, and and so, um, you know, the establishment, they, they have these communities by the balls. I mean, this would never happen in a middle-class uh, neighborhood or upper-middle-class neighborhood. And, um, right. And that's right. in part because some of these these families, you know, they have more time and they have, obviously, the money and the power. So, right. you know, you're, you're dealing with people who, um, you know, have lost hope for a very good reason. It's because they don't have time to have hope. And so right. – um, what I try to, uh, uh, you know, inspire people to do is, is take take one to three hours a week, and you can literally do anything. I always tell people, you know, they have no idea where they could possibly get involved in, in regards to their role as an activist. And I tell them, what are you good at? What do you enjoy doing? What's a hobby of yours? You know what I mean? Right. Um, so some guy might be working, you know, two jobs, but 
when he gets home, he uh, likes to tinker on his computer. Um, okay, so you know, use the, those couple hours a week you use playing around on your computer and reach out to organizations that could use, you know, uh, uh, help in terms of computer programming or website development or, or anything. I mean, take somebody who likes to blog for fun. Well, start blogging about a, a cause, you know, that's uh, close to your heart. And, I mean, literally anything you can think of if you are – you manage a, uh, I don't know, a dental office. Okay, you have managerial skills. So that, you know, those skills can be used within an organization. And so, you know, the list literally goes on and on, but everyone thinks that the only way to be an activist or to get change is to be on the front lines of a protest. And, uh, you know, in this day and age, we're, we're realizing that um, successful movements are successful because they're often run kind of like a business, you know, where whereby they they're, they have uh, a branding, you know, aspect to them, you know, where there's actual marketing campaigns. and But instead of raising money, you're raising awareness. Or if you are raising money, you know, it's going towards a cause. And right. so, uh, you know, these any kind of business, you know, might have 50 different roles, you know, as opposed to just the one role people think of when they think of activism, and that's protesting. So, you know, I try to, I try to uh, you know, inform people that, you know, uh, no matter what, there is always something you can do. You know what I mean? No matter what. And and there's, uh, you know, people might think, well, what I'm doing is meaningless. Well, you know, if what you and 10,000 other people are doing every single day, it collectively it adds up. You know, like just sharing uh, a really important news story, like say about Standing Rock. You know, without social media and people uh, sharing all those stories, uh, you know, this this uh, the events in North Dakota would likely uh, not be nearly as, uh, so to speak, popularized. And that's just because people are, are aware and they care, and they're just doing something as little as sharing a story. And, and uh, so, yeah, there's, there's so much, so much uh, we can do collectively that, uh, you know, it's not just limited to, to protesting. And so that's another thing, too, we try and teach activists is, you know, uh, it's not just organizing, it's everything. Anything you can think of. Do it in the realm of activism, and it'll be it'll have a positive effect, even if you don't see it initially. So, so yeah, that's, yeah. There's no you know, there's, there's no doubt about that. That is, and the, those are excellent words. And and what what I'm hoping happens, you know, the the, the good thing about shows like mine is that you know, and social media interaction is that we get to reach a lot of people. Fortunately, and one of the things I want people to know about is Flint, Michigan. And, you know, understanding that, as you just said, the different ways that you can raise awareness about that's real. That's so, so very important. And what I want you guys to add, and Anita, I'll go to you next, is what I want you guys to add to this discussion is what the people of Flint told you about their condition. What is going on with the water specifically? Why are you there? Things like that. What what prompted you? to go there based, based upon what was happening to the people in Flint. So that can also motivate my listeners. Well, I will say that I learned a lot this weekend because a lot of the things that you hear on the news or heard on the news was really about the lead. But when I was listening to the panel discussion, I learned that there was much more in the water than just lead. There were chemicals. There was bacteria. You know, they talked about the Legionnaire's disease, and there's just so much going on there that goes 
way beyond just lead, which means that this is something that's going to be going on for decades, and these people will need ongoing care. You know, that is not the impression that I got when I saw President Obama take that sip of water, and I do mean sip. Right. <laughs> so, right. No, I know. That was – no, go ahead. You're absolutely right on that. And I think that what people need to look into is not just what's going on in Flint, but there are other communities across America where this is a problem. And uh, one of the things I heard this weekend that just resonated with me is that water is a human right, and I think that's something that we need to start talking about. And it needs to be exposed not just in Flint but everywhere. But I think Flint is where the movement starts. You know, water, that's interesting you mentioned that, the the water is a right thing. And, and, and of course, there's been, for example, my colleagues at Antimedia, you know, those Putin people, the, the, I guess I'm one of them. Right. So they had talked that they were the first, I believe, to expose what the Nestle's owner said, that water wasn't a right and needs to be privatized. And, you know, what people need to remember is that from their third grade science class or maybe fourth grade, one or the other, is that we were told at a very young age that our body is like, all water with the exception of a very small percentage you know so if there's something that you i think i think whatever whoever your god is i think he kind of instilled the fact that water is necessary and no one should have control of it because that's how we actually have to live so you raise a really good point and and i'm glad that you said it that way because it needs that pushback needs to happen that water is essential to human life which in fact is the reason why it is a right of ours to have because it's essential. You cannot have it controlled by anybody for any we government, whatever private industry. I wouldn't care. It's, it's a natural essential right of our own. And, and it's about time that we took that uh, attitude, I believe, and, and, and instilled it upon our brethren and sisters without a doubt. What do you say about that, Andrew? Um, 110% with you. I mean, uh, of all the commodities and resources and what have you, um, we literally can't go without water for more than, you know, sometimes only a day, sometimes up to three days. Whereas, you know, oil we can, in theory, live without forever. Of course, we'd have to learn to be human again, <laughs> you know, and uh, not rely, be so reliant. But in any event, um, yeah, the ultimate controlling resource of all is water. I mean, you cannot yep. go for very long. So um, it does not surprise me uh, one bit that the establishment is now literally attacking our rights to water and and its cleanliness. You know, as we've seen, Standing Rock is seen in Flint. There's other cities that uh, the media hasn't even touched upon. One of them, for instance, is Decatur, Alabama, which has a certain uh, similar scenario. And in fact, Milwaukee, uh, where one of our colleagues, uh, Bobby Anita's of ours, uh, Vince, uh, they um, their water contamination is actually higher than Flint, and you really would never yeah oh. you would never know it, and so um, you know so going with another thing that I didn't know or learned or had been learning that you'll never hear in the media is how corporate America is uh, exploiting this scenario, whether again yeah. it's pur- purposeful or not what it's doing to the community is it's driving down. Uh, real estate prices to the point where you can literally buy a three-bedroom home on, uh, you know, like maybe a third of an acre for $5,000, literally. And right, these, right. These communities, um, a lot of the people who have been evicted or moved out or whatever, um, their homes are going up and they're <laughs> sold off, and you come to find out that entire neighborhoods 
are literally becoming corporatized and they're rebuilding the neighborhoods and driving you know driving the lower income residents out and i mean it's it's not just gentrification i mean it's literally like uh economic genocide um, right and right. you know i i fear that uh you know uh this is a, a model that they're trying to create <clears throat> you know corporatizing lower income cities um and a, a model that they might try to uh to reproduce across the country with these, you know, these uh, uh, lead problems being exposed. And so, you know, what we really want to do is create a working model, uh, but the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, whereby, you know, there's going to be soon, within the next few years, hundreds, maybe even upwards of a thousand cities that uh, are coming out with the same problems. And so, uh, you know, we're trying our best, you know, to create a, a working model in Flint, that could then be reproduced in other cities, of course, tailored to the city's, you know, different needs and demographics. But, sure. um, but yeah, uh, there's, I mean, there's just so much going on. Like one of the, um, one of the, uh, 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 people I was with, uh, a woman by the name of Sean, she's telling me, pointing out all these different, uh, stores that have gone out of business and all these neighborhoods that have, you know, just been bought up by corporations. And so, yeah, that's one of the things you definitely will not hear on the news. And, and another thing, uh, is going back to Nestle, is the fact that um, number one, Nestle is making a shitload of money off of this. Yes, they are. Now everyone's, you know, there's probably I don't know, you know, ten million bottles of water, you know, some arbitrary number. It's got to be in the millions that have been bought for purposes of uh, of relief, and somebody's making a ton of money on this. And what do you know, Nestle, um, they have been bottling their water straight out of uh, uh, the Great Lakes. And so, I mean, literally, these guys have created an almost like a, I guess like a, a racket, if you will, of they, will, they basically will suck out, uh, you know, what should be the public's fresh water out of, say, Lake Huron, bottle it, and then literally just miles away, send it over to Flint, you know what I mean? And, right. And uh, exploit it to, you know, to the nth degree. And, uh, and so, yeah, we're starting to see uh you know the the true nature of the real powers that be what they really want to do with the world you know this is not just a a haves and have nots this is everybody else versus the people who control everything including water you know so uh it's kind of scary but at the same time um you know things can be done we just have to be diligent and and brave and and inspire others to do, to do so as well because you know when we have great numbers then uh, they establish. They don't like it. Well, yeah, they'll lose inevitably. Yeah, and that's why they don't like it. Yep, exactly. There's so much going on in these cities that you'll never hear. It's it's really shocking. So, Mark, tell me, getting back to you, what is the next step for this coalition that you guys have created? Uh, for Flint, Michigan, for you anyway, what's the next step for you and your organization? What we're going to do, and and we're working at this, like I said, from different angles. Um, from the national standpoint, we have to continue to keep eyes on this situation. We have to continue to drive home the point that we can't underestimate the crisis that we have on our hands, uh, and we also can't underestimate the opportunity it presents 
in us understanding some very fundamental problems uh, that currently exist in our society. As we push that, that uh, message out on a national level and we begin to uh, corral support, uh, it is very important that we stay on the ground in Flint. We're, uh, we're going back December 17th, actually. Uh, we're hosting a Christmas event for the kids and uh, just using it as another opportunity to, you know, stay in touch with the people and see them again and, and uh, do another water drop and, and talk to more members of the community. And um, one of the important things uh, for organizations like us to remember is that a lot of the weariness that uh, communities have towards outside activists is that, uh, especially when a crisis hits and it's trending, they see a lot of people coming and going. And then when right. Facebook forgets about them, so does the rest of the world. Right. And uh, one of the main things that you have to do is to keep yourself involved, um, to, to recognize that this is a, a lifelong pursuit. And uh, the issue of, of clean water uh, is going to be at the, the forefront of a working-class battle that is going to be ongoing um, for an indeterminable amount of time. Uh, it, is, it is going to be something we will have to organize on globally at one point. Uh, but right now, we need to start by uh, enlightening ourselves and informing ourselves as to uh, who is threatening our water supply. So you need to find out who's threatening that in your community. You need to find out what's in your water. And you need to begin understanding how to organize as a community. Because by not having that capacity, by not understanding how to do that, you are ensuring that when the crisis hits, uh, you will not be prepared with the skill set necessary to put pressure on the power structure in order to have the problem solved. Um, because the fact of the matter is, the status quo, the elites are not concerned with the people of Flint, Michigan. And if you work on the ground long enough, or you even spend a day there and you talk to the people of Flint, you realize the elites do not give a damn. And uh, we need to begin coming together and realizing what lies ahead and that the time is now to begin moving on, on solving this. Excellent. Excellent. And, and Anita, take yourself off mute and jump in here and tell me where you're going next with this. Um, I'll be there with the team in December for the Christmas event. And then hopefully we'll have some more events scheduled for January and February. I know that in March we're holding a concert. So it's going to be a pretty busy few months. I'm looking forward to it. And in the meantime, I'll also be training the activists every time I get up there. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, and I just want to add in too, um, I mean, there's probably three or four or five, probably more different avenues to attack this problem many of which you have to do uh, all at the same time. So, um, you know, uh, one of the hardest things to do when, when it comes to this is raising money. Um, and inevitably the construction, you know how uh, bureaucracy is, it probably won't even start for six months. And then you know how it goes, the cost overruns and things take forever. And meanwhile, people are still 
buying um, bottled water. So, you know, as this, uh, we build this movement and we continue to, sh- to not shed light, but keep light shed on Flint and then the ongoing problem as a whole um, is that, you know, the, 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 uh, the goal in the interim is to provide a way to um, uh, provide the community with uh, water uh, filtration systems, and not just the ones that, you know, like your Brita's or what have you, but actual industrial strength uh, um, filters that effectively filter out the lead. And then, you know, but again, that's not a long-term solution. The long-term solution is to have the pipes built. Um, and so as some of you might know, uh, some of your listeners might know or might not, um, legislation was recently passed, or rather our federal budget was passed with a provision um, uh, allocating $170 million for communities like Flint that have affected, that have been affected by uh, water contamination. And so um, while the bill is written in terms of uh, how the money is essentially going to be spent and there's not really much you can do about that, what needs to be done and what we're going to uh, uh, you know, try and um, uh, uh, educate um, residents there and activists is how to create and properly uh, operate a, a nonpartisan oversight committee. You know, so right, I saw that. Yeah. When this money comes into the community, let's just say uh, $10 million is allocated for it, you better believe that uh, Governor Snyder and his cronies, you know, they're going to be, uh, uh, you know, getting the, the first bids on contracts. And, and so, for instance, you know, when it comes to the military, what they do is they do this, this non-compete process whereby right. – not the corporation that provides the best service for the cheapest cost. It's just who's uh, Obama's buddy or Bush's buddy or Trump's buddy who's going to get the contract. And so, right. uh, you know, while some to some degree we might, we might not be able to change that, we have to be diligent and stay on top of them and make sure that none of that money is being wasted. And if it is, exposing it, you know. And uh, so I suspect that this $170 million well, you know, as it's spread over, over, you know, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 other communities that, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, corruption, at least attempted, you know, just like there was in Louisiana after the hurricane. You know, $108 billion was allocated and billions, literally people who were taking money and starting their own drug dealing business. And while I right. don't to some degree, <laughs> I mean, I'm not <laughs> trying to promote drugs, but I also understand when your poverty and your house is underwater, you got to do what you got to do. Right, but, of course. But at the same time, I don't really blame them as much as I blame corporations who do that. And that's what these oversight committees uh, really need to focus on is preventing, uh, you know, wasteful spending and pressuring them to, to not take forever, you know. So that's, that's uh, one thing that we're going to focus on. The other one I said is water filters, but that takes time because you have to build up a campaign and a following you know, to uh, um, to effectively to raise enough money, you know, that could create that could you know purchase I don't know ten, twenty, thirty thousand filters. Um, so yeah, that's that's another uh, another goal of ours. And um, and you know, just like Mark said, just continuing to 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 keep uh, uh, the public eye on this. You know, because uh, while it was great that people focused on Louisiana and the flood, and then North Dakota, you know, and Standing Rock. All the while, um, you know, the uh, people of Flint were, uh, you know, uh, no pun intended, pushed to the back of the bus. You know, they were treated just like that. And, 
Um, so yeah, people need to the public needs to uh, continue knowing what's going on, and and so I think as as activists, that's one of our jobs that we have to do all the time, regardless of the of uh, the solutions that we propose and you know we try to execute. So yeah, it's it's going to be we're in it for the long roll. It's not a sprint. It's, not a marathon either, because we don't have all the time in the world. I'd say it's like a like a 10k. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you, you know, I what I what I think is important by the three of you, probably the most important part of this, is that the people of Flint, Michigan, know that we we're not doing a drive-by. This is the long haul, and these organizations that are that you guys are with, you guys and gal are with have commit made a commitment and are keeping that commitment and I'm throwing my hat in the ring as well along and I know there's going to be other people who are going to join this and anytime anybody from Flint worries about anything like that, just call into the show if you have to or pop into one of our Facebook pages and say hey guys what's happening we have no problem being involved with any of this stuff and I, I have to commend you three uh, and the rest of the people that were involved you guys you know the Mark mentioned a bunch of people from the, the two organizations, the uh, Mission Flint and, and, the, and the Water Collective, the Clean Water Collective, uh, for example. And I know there were other people involved just by from the pictures that uh, I put on in the event page, for example. And I know you guys want to make a shout out to all of them and all the local people that were involved. I, I saw a picture the other day uh, that discussed how bad it is with the water rationing and how much water people are getting oh, in their yeah. daily ration. And, and it is ludicrous. And, I, and yeah. Anita made a post. Uh, mm-hmm. And Anita, you may want to comment on this. You made a post about that when you were leaving, I saw. Another, another reason why I wanted to make sure and have you on the show, because it just shows where your heart is and, and, and how you collectively understand what's happening. But Anita, you made a comment about the, the rationing of water and how much there is to bathe and eat and stuff like that. I wanted you to chime in about that a little bit, please. Yes, I was reading an article from the Huffington Post where Governor Snyder and the state did not want to do the water deliveries to people's homes, even though it had been mandated. And I was just appalled because, you know, there's bathing, there's cooking, there's brushing your teeth. There's so much that you do with water every day. You take it for granted. When I was in Flint, um, it was just weird because I never thought about how much I used water until I was there and I had to brush my teeth with a bottle of water. And the last day I didn't shower because I was just, you know, I was like, I'm just going home. But I I have that option to go home. These people don't have that option and they're not getting the enough water to even really live. One of the activists I met um, that's local, she was talking about using 58 bottles of water just to cook her Thanksgiving dinner. Right. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I ran the numbers. It was uh, the mandate was 96 bottles of water, which comes out to roughly 13 gallons per week. Right. And while that seems uh, generous, and it's actually on par with uh, the amount of water we're able to deliver to people, uh, at the same time, a shower, for instance, takes about 20 gallons. Um, right. A bath, if you fill it up halfway, is 40 gallons. And so, if one, if a family, save a family of five. And you all, everyone uh, limits their showers now to once a week. Do the math. That's 100 gallons of water, and that's a short shower. And all they're getting from the government is 13 gallons. So, right. And then, uh, so it's not just an insult. 
you know, that this is what they think is a, a reasonable amount to supplement their needs. But then at the same time, they turn around, and as we just mentioned, mentioned Governor Sutter is now trying to block this. Uh, and I suspect, I mean, it's pretty obvious, it's all politics because if, you know, if you uh, um, if you allow this bill to, to go on and people to get the water delivered, then everything they said about, oh, you know, the water's clean now, now we just got to build the pipes, everything's taken care of, it'll obviously prove it's a lie. Because right, of course. Why would we need 96 bottles of water every every week? So it's all politics. That's the way it always is. And, uh, yeah, that Snyder has got, he's got karma coming him, coming for him this life or the next. Guys, well, there's really no doubt. But go ahead, Anita. I was just going to mention that one of the residents told me that she was told that if she did not keep up with her water bill, that she would not be eligible for water deliveries. Oh yeah, the same. Yeah, you know, and and, and I saw, I you know, I saw your math, Andrew, and and I saw. So the 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 Huffington Post article, and I've been. This is an issue that I've followed uh, from the from the beginning of it as well. And and yeah, absolutely politics. There's got to be a way. Well, <laughs> I say that, uh, hopefully not rhetorically, but there's got to be a way to get past that muck and mire and get these people help, even if it has to be done in court. Which I know there's court actions going on. You guys know anything about the court stuff going on at all? I haven't was- checked lately. I have honestly not checked either, but what I do recall um, is the first uh, uh, water drop operation that I was involved in, uh, where actually I did most, um, uh, it was mostly organizing and behind the scenes I wasn't able to uh, attend. But uh, in any event, about a week or two before our uh, first uh, uh, water convoy, actually we had 22 states worth of people heading out there on Memorial Day weekend. But anyways, um, about two weeks before that, Two activists who had uh, filed a, a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit, and I can't recall it was it was police or not, and don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure it was a, a military uh, contracting company, you know, which makes you wonder why the hell, what the hell are they doing there, you know? But right. uh, nevertheless, these people, um, you know, uh, mysteriously uh, disappeared and died. Um, so. Mm. And, and what do you know? Everything else that that uh, has gone on uh, in terms of the corruption and the scandal and all that hasn't been covered. But what does the mainstream media do? They cover this the uh, the death of two activists, and I think it's pretty obvious that uh, the establishment wants us to be afraid to take such action. You know? Sure. So, sure. So since then, I don't know personally. Um, you know what if any legal action has been taken, but I can but I can imagine that uh, if people have thought about it. They might have uh, shied away from it just by virtue of, you know, the events that took place uh, last spring. So that's a good question. Definitely worth looking into. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll help with that myself as well. I'll take a look and see what's going on because it, they're they're, and of course you guys have mentioned it. When you talk about the community itself, there are not people with money, so they're not going to be able to go out and hire lawyers or run into court mm-hmm. and such. Um, and of course. The media doesn't talk about it. I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, the pro bono work is something that I'm involved with from the legal's perspective. And I'm sure that a lot of the people that are my colleagues there don't even know about what's going on there. Because, again, without activists and nonprofits being involved, there's no information being put out other than, well, we need to stop this lawsuit. And then Anita raised, I mean, geez, gosh, you got people have to pay their water bill or they're not going to get their water ration and they can't use the water that they're paying their water bill for. Doesn't anybody see that? <laughs> it's, it's crazy. 
You know, it reminds, me, uh, it reminds me of when a when a, um when you go under your uh, uh, checking account, say your availability is minus ten cents, and well, most people if they go under, that that's because they're 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 not poverty stricken, but they're living paycheck to potato. That's for sure. And then what does the right. bank do? They go ahead and penalize you for not having enough money. Right. <laughs> Thirty. Let's add that thirty-five on there because you're in the hole. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's outrageous. But, uh, it really is, and that is a vicious circle that is going around these people. And, and and again, as we mentioned, as all of us have talked about, water is essential to human life, and these people are not being allowed something that is essential to human right. Everybody should be furious. Everybody Absolutely. in our society should be furious about this. And when you see somebody like the CEO of Nestle saying that mm. he doesn't believe water is a human right, what he's essentially saying is that if you are too poor to afford it, you deserve to die. Yep. That's and, exactly and what it is. That's the root of the mindset that we're looking at that, that catalyzes a, a situation like the crisis in Flint. Um, and, and it is a shared mindset amongst a, a certain elite group of people um, that are really the ones uh, that are at the helm, that are at the forefront of this problem. Yeah, very well said and, and absolutely true. And, and it is – and, you know, the thing, the thing that's about this from an ideological standpoint, you know, like you mentioned, they're telling you to die. Well, if we just take the absurd ide- ideology of our society, the divisiveness, and just take that phrase, you certainly can get people on the right with that phrase because they use the same phrase in the Affordable Care Act, for example. That was one of the reasons why they didn't like it, regardless. And then you have the, then you of course you have all the things necessary for the left to be involved because you have the the poor being attacked. It's happening. Sometimes ideology is real. What needs to happen is that the people who are talking both of these things, if they talk to each other and look at Flint, they're like, oh, okay, let's fix it together. Exactly. What exactly. could possibly go wrong with that? I, I don't. I don't see a problem with it. Uh, you, uh, help me you know, out. It, um, <laughs> it's like um, uh, uh, reminds me of Standing Rock. Uh, Standing Rock is actually a great example of just what you said, whereby ideologies from both the left and the right can come together. And uh, so, if, in, in terms of Standing Rock, uh, there's issues, you know, with um, the Army Corps engineers and um, the Bureau of Land Management and and right, right. Uh, uh, and uh, what's what's the expression called when you give away land, the government takes it? It's called um, uh, eminent domain. Eminent domain, so em- eminent domain, and they have yeah. used that in this particular exactly. case. So they have used and that. So yeah. what's going on is you know there's there's essentially stealing land uh, and using government land for this, and so the people on the right, for instance, that were up in arms about um, uh, the Bundy case, you know, where the BLM. Right. Uh, you know, right. No matter where you stand on that, and some people think it's all BS. Whatever the case may be, the fact is is that that's something that uh, that you know that they're uh, passionate about, and that is preventing the government from stealing land and using it for their own exploitative purposes. And and at the same time, uh, people on the left, you know, are concerned uh, that when they when this happens, that the water and the ecosystem is then damaged. And so right. you have from both sides that agree that this this illegal land grabbing you know is is well not just illegal and unethical but it's dangerous in terms of right. our health and well-being so so yeah i mean uh these these basic human rights issues of water uh transcend any kind of political ideology it's a, a human ideology 
Well, it's a great example on how they keep us divided. You know, one of the things, as you know, uh, Andrew, I know you know me, know me, and and I know Anita doesn't know me as well, and Mark doesn't know me. Just met me, but you know that's one of my one of my advocacies is is bringing divisive sides together to the table to talk. I mean, that is important if we're going to fix this. I, you know, I, I've always I've always you know look at Congress for a great example and how divisive. They fell right in line with the division. It's kind of interesting. And I, and I tell people, I said, you know, if you're a Democrat, I'm sorry, but you're not 100% right all the time. And if you're a Republican, that goes double for you. You're not 100% right all the time. So, how? I mean, somebody else has to be right. We learn this as kids. I mean, yeah. you, you don't know. I mean, we didn't always get 100 on the test, you know. Uh, and, and there are examples of this throughout our history. And, of course, we love to ignore history, especially when it comes to government. We love to ignore government history. It's just amazing. But, I, you know, but it, this is exciting stuff. So not, not going off on a tangent. This is exciting stuff. So what can I do as an activist, and I'm speaking in general terms, but what can I do as an activist to help you guys on your next trip from Flint, Michigan? So everybody that's listening to this show, and will be listening to the show by way on iTunes and, and Republished and on Block Talk Radio, what can we do to help you? The first well, thing. well oh, go we ahead, have, uh, right now we have a, a GoFundMe page uh, for our four days for Flint operation. The uh, Thanksgiving event that we just did um, was part of the four days for Flint operation. Um, that GoFundMe is GoFundMe.com slash four days for Flint. Um, Wait, is it, can, is it letters or numbers? Tell the audience. Oh, it is, yeah, number four days for Flint. Uh, four days for Flint. So, GoFundMe.com forward slash four days for Clint. Uh, for Flint. Gotcha. Yeah, number four days, number four Flint. Um, and uh, so if you follow us on Facebook as well at Facebook.com slash National Clean Water Collective, uh, we'll keep you updated with everything we're doing. Um, very importantly, is uh, outside of just supporting us as an organization it, it really isn't just about us it's about learn what's going on in your community understand how the situation in flint is connected uh to all of american society and that this crisis affects all of us and and begin to create contingency plans in your own community for how you will corral support around water as a human right um once it becomes threatened by uh, these elite forces uh, that we've talked about tonight. Um, anybody that's out there that wants to connect with us, that, that uh, is willing to stand in solidarity with us uh, for this cause, um, we're, we're always here. Uh, you, can, you can follow us on Facebook. As a matter of fact, I think communication is one of the most important things for this to uh, continue and to build and to grow stronger. Um, I think that, that what you were saying before as far as bringing the left and the right together, it is because it is such a fundamental aspect of our survival, it is something that so many people can agree upon. And I've been very lucky to work with people from all different political leanings, um, and that's why I like keeping that line of communication open. If there are activists out there, you can you can contact us on Facebook. We also have National Clean Water Collective at gmail.com. You can send us an email. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Mark Danaram. That's D H A N I R A M. 
um, and, and, you know, get in touch with us. Find out what we're doing. Uh, follow the page. Uh, we need as many people as we can. We need as much support as possible. Um, this is going to take the mass of working class people in America to collectively stand up and, and stand with the people of Flint together uh, to provide that support. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Fantastic. Anita, you're next. I just want to follow up with everything that Mark just said. Uh, please get involved. Uh, contact us, and if you would like to donate supplies or help us collect toys for the December event, please get in touch with us uh, via Facebook. Fantastic. Andrew? Uh, another uh, a way to or, uh, contact us, rather, is to go to Solution Institute's um, Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash activist help and message us, uh, you know, through that. You can also go to our Facebook page. I mean, I'm sorry, our website, solutions-institute.org. And uh, there's, uh, you know, multiple ways to contact us. And uh, there's a little pop-up window that you can uh, click on, and that will, uh, you know, you, you submit your email, add, us, add you, I'm sorry, to our database, and uh, we uh, we <clears throat> actually we slacked off a little bit. You know, we're human, and so we're putting out our, uh, a newsletter that was supposed to encompass the summer. We just got so busy. So, uh, you know, you'll have access to regular uh, 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 newsletters, and, uh, and again, you'll be able to... to to be in contact with us to see what you can do. Because like I said earlier, you know, whether it's an hour a week or you're a professional activist and, you know, you could do this 20 hours a week, any little thing, anything you're good at, you know, can be uh, translated into uh, helping a cause or a movement. So uh, we're out there. Uh, we, you know, it's hard finding everyone else. So uh, that's where we are. And, yeah, anybody that wants to help, the more the better, you know. Well, you know, I appreciate you guys taking the time. I know you just got back from doing that, and, and you're back at home, at least I hope you are, and, and get a chance to take a breath. And, of course, you're going to be diving into the next thing. I know that's what, kind of what we all do. But I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. And, and for those who want to get in touch with them and, and need another way, you can always do it through me as well. You can go to my website, I take liberty with my com, and you'll see the Solutions Institute is the biggest banner on the top of the page right below my logo, for example. Uh, so if you missed any of that, you can certainly do it that way. Uh, guys and gals, I really appreciate you coming on, Mark, Anita, and Andrew, and you're welcome anytime to drop by. I'll drop what I'm doing, and we can talk about anything like this at any given time. And, and uh, please uh, don't be strangers, and uh, we'll all be talking soon, I assure you. So everybody have a good night. Thank you so much for having us on, Bobby. Thank you. You're very welcome. Well, that's how it's done, guys. If you don't, if you didn't know, you know now. I mean, that's how this, the activism stuff is done. You know, you get out there, and you dive in, and you work at it, and you help people in communities learn about it and help them get the tools to be able to achieve things necessary for their own community. It's, it is very fulfilling to do actually you know it, it i i love this stuff i love success you know we all love success of varying kinds and, and the success of helping people there is no greater 
success. What was it, that line that they says you you risk your life for another? There is no greater love. Uh, from the movie First Night, King Arthur talking to Sir Lancelot. I'm going to play this commercial again for Solutions Institute. Then we're going to pay some bills and we're going to close out. You're an activist. You have a cause and an idea. But you also have lots of questions. You need help. After all, teams have coaches, corporations have consultants, and even politicians have campaign managers. But who do activists turn to? The Solutions Institute. We are a collection of professionals and activists from across the political spectrum. Our goal is to teach, motivate, and put all the necessary tools for activism in your hands without charge. Learn more or submit your project at solutions-institute.org. So just to let everybody know that, uh, about the Coffee Party Radio as well, before I move on to closing, that I also believe is important, I want to let you guys know that Coffee Party USA, of course, is not, we're not funded by Putin either, <laughs> by the way. Uh, we are crowdsourced, and we're always looking for members and more volunteers to do this work that we're talking about a little earlier with Andrew and Mark and Anita. And we do radio shows as part of this, and I want to talk to you about my colleagues as well. On Tuesday night, we have the show Muslim and Catholic Wake Up in America with Issa Hodge. Common Cal has been on sabbatical for a while, uh, Issa Hodge and guest host. And then on Wednesday, we have a cup of joe from the Human Solution International, the great human rights nonprofit based out of California, uh, bringing it real. The cup of joe on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Thursday, we have a number of shows that we bring at you on different Thursdays of the month. Lunch with Loudon leads off each month, the first Thursday of the month, 3 o'clock Pacific Time, noon. I mean, I'm sorry, 3 o'clock Eastern Time, noon Pacific. Lunch with Loudon with the great Janine Loudon, the first Thursday of the month. The second and fourth Thursday of the month, we bring you Living Room Conversations. Uh, a marvelous sit down with people in the communities talking to each other about specific subjects and living room conversations is a wonderful organization that essentially is helps people listen to each other. And of course, in our divisive society, that is also important. And then we have on Friday, we have, Oh, I, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. I have to wait on Thursday, the third Thursday, of each month. We have the Conscious Bridge with the great Mark Gilbert talking about the spiritual nature of our society and and how it is important to connect with each other. And Fridays we have your weekly constitutional, three PM Eastern Time, noon Pacific. Every Saturday we have politics done right with Egberto Willies. Eastern time, ten Pacific time. And then every Sunday morning I come at you, or at least I try to. I haven't been doing it lately because of the holidays. But every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 Pacific Time, I take liberty with my coffee. I'm always glad to be here. And hopefully I'm bringing a little knowledge into your life of things you didn't know about. uh, And hopefully I'm inspiring you to care about some things. In closing, I want to talk about another event that happened over the holidays that is – personal, I suppose, uh, to some degree. Um, and that was the death of Fidel Castro. The reason I say it's personal, I'm not of Cuban descent. I am, I am Spanish. I'm, a, I'm not of Cuban descent, but uh, growing up in New York, in the melting pot that is New York, 
I grew up with, and I'm still friends with deep, deep friendships with a very large Cuban community in my hometown of Astoria. And what's important about that, and I was discussing this today, but what's important about that is not only did I know, do I know about Cuba from my friends of so many years, but when I was growing up, you know, I knew their parents and I knew the grandparents and their aunts and uncles and cousins and stuff, you know, because we were all in the same block. And back in those days, you know, we all interacted with our families. They knew mine, of course. And I heard about Cuba all my life, you know, and, and, I, and I know the things that were happening. And, and I've seen some divisive stuff going on, particularly for people I respect, actually, which has been kind of surprising about the defense of Fidel Castro because of all the good that he did it because he, he stood in the face of imperialism from the United States and, and, you know, because of his interaction with Mandela and South Africa and, and some other things you could call positive, I suppose. And, you know, I have no problem with acknowledging those things. I have no problem with acknowledging Castro's involvement in stopping apartheid. Uh, we know from history and because I lived in it as an adult that, you know, people like Ronald Reagan were not trying to stomp out apartheid. My, Margaret Thatcher uh, supported apartheid, literally, in, in, in their comments, in, in their opening, out their mouth. This isn't just people guessing, you know. So I, of course, have problems with the United States' support of South Africa in every way, shape, or form. So I understand that. My problem with anybody saying anything good about any leader, ours included, is when they are treating people of the, their own people badly, they don't get a pass. No matter what they do out in the world, they do not get a pass. So Castro, and, and again, you know, I, I listen to stories about what Cuba all the time. Uh, and le, I mean, now, and I'm not talking about in the past, even I'm talking about now, the way it is, the way, the way ration, the way their populace is rationed and things like that. And when I see people defending Castro and not wanting to hear anything negative about him, or I'm going to throw him off your suits to your wall, or I'll never talk to you again. It really boggles my mind because Castro has treated his people really bad. And yeah, he destroyed capitalism and Batista treated his people really bad. It doesn't matter what he does anywhere else. If his people are oppressed, it doesn't matter what our leaders do anywhere else if their people are oppressed. That's how this works. You know, Castro was a leader of a country, and yeah, he may have, and, and I saw another one about the literacy rate of Cuba being better than ours. Meanwhile, the population of Cuba is less than, uh, somebody had made this comment, is less than the, the metro area of where I grew up in New York. And of course it is absurd. Um, I don't care about all that. I care about how he oppresses his people. And I care about the stories that I've heard my whole life from people who it happened to, who it is happening to, who have family members still there that it's happening to. These things are important to know about when one makes the decision to get rid of their friends because they have a different decision, for example, which is ludicrous to me. It, 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 anyway, Castro was a bad man without question. He certainly his views on I don't know LGBT for example are hard, you know as are many dictators in the world that you may like their views on human rights for their own people and what they've done and the murdering that they've done and and the stomping down of dissidents 
that they've done is wrong. And Castro was has was hard. His regime is hard. I don't care what he did for South Africa in the context of him being a good leader because he wasn't. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. And if I lose some of my friends from the left from saying it, then be gone because I'm telling you the truth. And anybody who questions that should sit down with people from Cuba and listen to them. You know, it, it's from an ideological standpoint, you know, I know people from Cuba that are so far to the right that you can't have a conversation with them about anything and, or anyone, I should say, any politician that is from the left. And, I, and the reason that is, is because they come from oppressive communism and they, are, they, they want nothing to do with the left. And I totally understand that. I empathize with it. And you should be you should do that before you sit down and start talking to them. If you are talking to them, because that that is a legitimate thing. It's no different than any other oppression that you see in our country on a daily basis. It is the same. We have had leaders that do not treat our society proper. We know that, you know, uh, left, right. It doesn't matter. We are in this position because our politicians don't care. Castro was a bad man, bad man, extremely bad man. He is an oppressive communist leader, period. I am not a fan of communism. I want nothing to do with it. I like liberty with my coffee. Did you hear that phrase before? That, Cause that's what I take liberty with my coffee. And it's important that you at least look at what I'm saying to you. Talk to people from the Cuban country. It, it, they'll tell you the stories on what he does. You know, the United States hasn't visited Cuba, you know, because of the embargo, but other countries do. And they go to the beautiful beaches and, and, all, and, and they're served by Cuban people who are working for the hotel business. And what people don't realize is that the people who work in the hotel business get to use their tip money to go to the black market to supplement their family's rations with real food and real clothing. That's how they do it, because otherwise they don't see anything. That's how the government is controlling them, among other ways. So keep that in mind when you come up with your opinions about Castro being some kind of revolutionary guy and being good for society, because that is just not the case, people. It is a little different than what you think. On that note, I'm going to leave it. It's Monday night. I'm rarely here on Monday nights anymore. I used to spend a lot of time with you guys. I'm glad you stopped by. Remember to check in with me every Sunday. Go to my Facebook page, I Take Liberty With My Coffee. My website, I Take Liberty With My Coffee.com. Stop in and talk to the Coffee Party USA. Join the Coffee Party Movement Facebook page as well. Everybody have a fantastic evening and a fantastic night. I'm out. Be well. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.